uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him to teach us uh, this morning. Lord, thank you. Uh, We are grateful to have your truth recorded for us in your intention to explain the little bit about yourself that we could understand over the course of thousands of years recorded uh, from multiple perspectives, uh, at least 40 different authors, Lord, and compiled together and protected by your hand for us to be able to learn from, to have a, an anchor in the current of life, in the seas that we are on. Uh, Lord, at the same time, we, we do not worship the word of God. We worship the God of your word. And Lord, we want your presence here. We want you to teach us. Lord, I come here with the few things that, that I believe that you want us to to pick up from these verses, Lord, but I pray that you would do so much more than that. And I pray, Lord God, that you would apply your truth in uh, so much of an uh, infinitely more valuable way than anything that my words could accomplish. We pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to speak, to speak into each one of our hearts, Lord God, to help us to see, Father, with your eyes on the troubles that we go through in this world. Lord, those troubles come from what seems like benign sources, and they also come from people. And each one of those can have their own challenges. And Lord, each one of those, we are uh, given a, a, um, ideas from this world of, of just what they mean as far as what they mean about your power, what they mean about whether or not you care about us, whether or not you are capable of doing what you claim to be able to do. And Lord, we don't want to listen to these voices. We want to listen to your voice. We want to be reminded of who you are and what your plan is for your children. So Lord, teach us from your word here this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, so much of life is is about work. Uh, I think it can be a, a challenge for us as when we were young to, to just realize just how much of our life we will spend working. Um, Kelly and I were talking recently about, you know, life on the prairie, life for the settlers, the, the, the pioneers of, of our land and, and how, um, you know, they could spend the majority of their day just preparing for, to, to be able to survive that day and maybe for, uh, putting up a little bit for the future, for, for when uh, the, the harvest would be done, uh, storing it away. 
we oftentimes think about the fact that we must work in order to earn a living so that we can uh, pay for the things that we need. Uh, I've, I've shared with you before that, that when my kids complain about going to work or, or needing to work and, and to, to earn money, you know, I tell them, well, well, the fact is is that if they didn't pay you to go there, you wouldn't choose to go there and do what you do. That's why they pay you to be there. If you just loved it, if you just couldn't get enough of it, you'd be paying them to be there. And they'd call it an amusement park. <laughs> but that's kind of how it, it works is that, well, if you will do this work, then we'll pay you uh, what we think that it is worth and, and it makes it worth your while. We, we've uh, learned a little bit uh, been learning a little bit about what capitalism is. You know, you, you earn capital, and you, when you have capital, and you're willing to risk that capital in a way that you think it's going to be a good investment of it, and add a little elbow grease and a little ingenuity to it, then risking that in a wise way, hopefully is going to pay you back. And, and hopefully... Uh, the the things that you do with that capital or the things that you do in, in the risks that you take, both with your money and with your body, hopefully they're worthwhile uh, because there's always a danger of losing what we're investing. There's always a danger even to personal well-being with the work that we do. This led me to, to think about what are some of the most dangerous jobs? What are the, some of the jobs that, that can... Um, be the most dangerous to, for life and limb of the people that work them. Number one of the most dangerous jobs, and this, these statistics came from 2018, was logging work, uh, the work of loggers. I, I got to visit with uh, Bill about this, uh, Bill Hepburn, um, this morning. Bill used to be a logger um, up north, and uh, the stati statistically... Out of 10,000 loggers, 12 of them are going to die on the job. And as of 2018, that was number one. And it probably still is pretty close to that. And Bill could attest to that of how dangerous it is. Uh, half of that statistically came in number second was aircraft pilots and flight engineers. Uh, interestingly, number five is garbage collectors. And if you've seen how some of these guys hang on the back of the truck, um, it, it, you, you'd think so. You'd, you can understand why. I can remember actually seeing a young garbage collector uh, come by our house and picked up the garbage and threw it in, grabbed stuff with his hands, and then hopped back on the truck and picked up his sandwich and started eating again. And being the germaphobe that I am, I realized that's probably one of the ways that these guys die. Uh, like with one of the pictures that we see here, iron workers is, is a number six on one of the most dangerous jobs. Uh, for them, falling from great heights is um, the most common cause of death, sadly. Delivery drivers is number seven. This includes truck drivers and things like that, and you're getting into um, the, the occurrence of traffic accidents and things. Number eight is farmers of the most dangerous occupations. I remember um, visiting with, with uh, Kurt Stevens one time. Uh, he, was, he was harvesting some of the ground that he rented, 
and the owner of the ground was out there, um, and uh, we were kind of sitting there talking and stuff, and the front of the combine is still turning, and the owner picked up a couple stalks of corn, and he's kind of hand-feeding it into the front of the combine, and Kurt just like looked at me like, oh, you don't do that, and we talked about it later. He said, you have, he said, it can be the strangest thing. You never have anything in your hand because he said, before you think you'd let go of that, but before you know it, you could be in a mess or be a mess. Um, and I'm, maybe some of you have known friends and family that have died uh, farming. So number eight, it is of most dangerous occupations. Interestingly, this was back in tw- 2018. Police officers came in at number 22. I have a feeling that if these statistics were from 2020, they'd be pretty much further up on the list, sadly so. I'd I'd hate to see if some people had their way uh, this list uh, sometime in the future. I think you'd see social workers uh, on this list because apparently the idea is send the social workers in to the situation somehow they would be safe. Um, but we, w- we look at Second Thessalonians with the idea of how important it is to work wisely. To work wisely. You know, we, looked, uh, we learned from First Thessalonians in that letter and, and what was going on in Thessalonica is that this young, growing church, growing spiritually, growing numerically, that it was not a comfortable situation for them. In the region of Thessalonica, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of trouble. And yet they are still called to do the work of ministry. I will see in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, where Paul will write, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. The goal for them wasn't safety. The goal was glorifying Christ. We'll see in chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He's not saying as you hide in your basement. No, but in every good work and word. We'll even see as we saw Uh, The situation continued there where some of them were saying, you know what, Uh, Jesus is coming soon. Uh, That means if I have great faith, I'm going to quit my job. And so there's still the importance that is communicated to them to be about earning an income, to be about doing uh, the work that uh, the, the, the physical work. That's necessary to live. We'll see in chapter 3 where Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And we'll see how easy it was for the love that this body had for one another, for some of them to kind of take advantage of that and kind of uh, consider themselves almost like spiritual gurus. Like, I'm just here for this, you know, for the for the spirit world. I don't need that work idea. So we open up the letter, the second letter from Paul to the Thessalonians this morning. And it reads this way. 
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here a, a typical opening that Paul would make a typical greeting that he would make. And, and he's writing, representing his team of evangelists and church planters here, including Silvanus and Timothy. And so we continue on to the verses that we'll be focusing on here this morning. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God and for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. As you look toward the payday, and that's what we're looking at today, looking to payday, look, looking toward our payday meaning the day that we will be able to be with Jesus. I want to challenge you, first of all, pursue spiritual growth during times of trouble. Pursue spiritual growth during times of trouble. We see this here in verses 3 and 4. Uh, we ought always to give thanks to God Paul writes, for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. The growth of the Thessalonian church was evidenced by their endurance and their continued faith. The young believers, they, they were showing steadfastness and faith even while enduring trouble. Paul lists off the persecutions that they were experiencing. This, this refers to the intentional assaults on Christians because of their faith in Christ. He also refers to their afflictions. These are more general troubles and could, could uh, qualify any troubles they come to do due to our living in a sinful world. Seems to me like 2020 was a year of the affliction type of trouble. You know, just just comes with, from living in a sinful world. It may be that 2021 opens up the season of the persecution type of trouble for God's church. But, but God has the intention for us to pursue spiritual growth during any time, any type of trouble. 
You can remember from Acts 17 that the church in Thessalonica, it was birthed amidst trouble from unbelievers, both from Jewish unbelievers and Gentile unbelievers. And it was made up of those who were converted to Christ from both Jew and Gentile. And Paul's statements lays the glory for their response to God's grace where it should be laid, where he says we ought always to thank God for you brothers. He's not saying, oh, we're so thankful that you are so smart. We are so thankful that that you saw uh, and, and responded the way that you should. He says, we are thankful. We give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. The misconception that God is not sovereign over salvation and spiritual growth leads to issues of pride in his people. And in the same way, whenever we have an issue of pride in where we are in our relationship with the Lord, it comes from the misconception that God is not sovereign over our salvation and our spiritual growth. And this is why Paul thanks God for what he sees going on amidst the Thessalonians, even while they are in trouble. Even when with God receiving the glory for your growth, I encourage you to pursue a growing faith. That's what he points out for them, that their faith is growing abundantly. This takes the Greek term for for organic growth and adds the prefix hyper to it. Their hyper growth, their abundant growth that they're experiencing. Um, You know, we plant gardens and we watch normal growth of plants, and then we watch hypergrowth of weeds. You know, don't you wish the saying was, man, that guy is growing like a tomato plant? But no. Unfortunately, it's those weeds that have that hypergrowth. You, you walk away for a few days, you come back, and they've just multiplied, and they're huge. Well, well Paul is pointing out that they were experiencing hypergrowth of their faith. Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. And and it lists off person after person and how their faith grew amidst trials, amidst troubles. And their faith isn't much different than the faith that we are called to have. In fact, very at the beginning of Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then verse 3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's one of the foundational ideas that our world laughs at us for believing. That God made this universe out of nothing. But we believe it by faith. As well... Chapter 11 is full of accounts of men and women who held on to their faith for all of their lives. And their faith was richer for the fact that it was required their whole lives. And and yet, they never saw it come to fruition during their time on this earth. After listing off Abel and Abraham and Sarah, verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Living a life of faith is living a life that feels like you're in exile. 
And it feels like you're having to continually remind yourself, you know what? It's a matter of faith to be able to see the unseen. Many false teachers today are claiming that the stronger that your faith is, the less you will actually suffer. What God teaches in the scriptures is that persecution and affliction make for rich soil in which biblical faith can grow abundantly. This is much of what um, the video, the DVD that we'll be watching beginning tonight, the American Gospel, uh, focuses on is is this type of false teaching and and how the gospel um, is not that teaching. So secondly, as well as pursuing a growing faith, I challenge you uh, amidst this to pursue an increasing love. This is kind of an awkward phrase. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And the, the standard within this body of believers was love for each other, every one of them growing in it. Paul's concern that he voiced earlier in 1 Thessalonians was that their love would continue to increase. As he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And and we see here in his second letter that that in fact was happening. This is what he's encouraged by. And what can be difficult for long-time Christians is that our love is genuine. But yet that's what we're told in Romans 12, verses 9 through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know, as happens, any church has shared resources. Uh, We share a facility. We, we share our homes with each other. You know, we, we, we uh, share our, our hopes for the body. And, and as, as lead pastor, oftentimes um, I, I get to help one person with another or one, one team with another team at Harvest that, that maybe have different ideas about maybe how to use the facility or, or how to use our time or, or how to schedule things. And one of the things that, that I try to challenge everybody involved is that our lo- if our love is genuine, we will be out trying to outdo the others in showing honor to them. In, in trying to, you know, take it to them and say, hey, what do you think about this? We want to include you here in this decision. And, and that's what we should be about. And that's part of what Paul is celebrating and thanking the Lord for. I have uh, some pictures of yachts up here. One of them is a a yacht that's in the middle of a race. That yacht is not about to sink. It's actually, that's the intention of the the captain, is to to get that yacht uh, absorbing as much of the wind and, and, um, you know, moving as fast as it possibly can toward the goal. And in this situation, the captain is hoping for high winds. Choppy seas are not a worry because, you know, the the teams that he's competing against, they're facing the same choppy seas. The question is, how can you navigate through them in the most effective way? Overcoming the elements is just a part of the race. 
But the same yacht can be used as a dinner cruise. You know, hey, let's go out on my yacht and, and you know, I'll have my personal chef. I guess if you can afford a yacht, you maybe can afford a personal chef. I'll have my personal chef um, put everything out and, and it's not going to be winning any races in that way, right? We are intended to be braving the challenges for a greater goal, not of pleasure, not of comfort as God's people. Our captain is the Lord. And persecutions and afflictions can be the environment for us to best please our Lord. Afflictions aren't because... Um, <clears throat> they, afflictions are not a problem because personal comfort is not our goal. We don't come back to our captain and say, Hey, what's going on? You promised me a perfect life. He would look at us and say, yes, after you're dead. Let's get you there. Should we have dinner with each other? Sure. Should we enjoy one another's company? Sure. But our goal should be eternal in nature. Caring for each other's eternal soul. And persecutions and afflictions shouldn't diminish the opportunity to grow in Christ. To be together. You know, our experience on this earth, it is just a blip on the radar compared to eternity. I, I think we will remember it and, and we'll have, you know, our minds won't be fading like they do now. But I think with every moment of eternity, the time on this earth will seem less significant. Oftentimes it takes trouble to remind ourselves that happiness, it is elusive in this sinful world. How many men and women go through the midlife crisis realizing, is this really all there is? The answer is yes. In this world, at this time, I can be guilty of living for that time of day when I can just kick my feet back and relax. You know, like, okay, no more expectations on me. No more needs to be done. What is, shouldn't be important to me is how my day ends or how my days on this earth end. What should be most important to me is the sum of my days, the sum of our days. In light of eternity. And as you look toward our payday of being with Christ, pursue God's perspective during times of trouble. Pursue God's perspective. We read in verses 5 through 8, we're just going to be focusing in on verse 5. But he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. And by this he means their steadfastness and their faith. Of verse 4. So, this steadfastness, this faith, is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And then it seems like Paul kind of loses himself describing that future, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So next week we'll go into the details of the day of the Lord that is being described here when God will repay with affliction those who afflict his children. The reason why the day of God's judgment is being discussed here is because um, there had been fears welling up within the churches of this region of Thessalonica. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, uh, many believe that, that someone who had been posing in, their, in a letter to be the Apostle Paul sent a letter to these churches. And basically said, because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul described how, how one day God, Jesus is going to return and we are going to be caught up together with him. And that term caught up is, is where we get the Latin term rapturo. We will be raptured away together with him. And that that would begin the day of the Lord. But, but apparently a letter, or it's believed that a letter came to them saying, from posing to be from the Apostle Paul, saying, oh, hold on, I was wrong. In fact, all of this affliction and all this trouble that you're going through, that's just evidence of the fact that we missed the boat. And there's no rapture, and, and we're in the middle of the day of the Lord now. And so that's why this is being brought up and discussed. And he's, he's basically saying, uh, there is a day that is coming, and it's going to be very different from today. And it is when the afflictions are going to be coming from the Lord. And those afflictions are going to be aimed at the very people that are afflicting you now. So he's kind of um, uh, contrasting that. For now we focus on how God planned and enables us to live amidst troubles as we wait for Jesus' return. As one writer says, one day Jesus will turn the tables and the wicked will suffer while the believers are rewarded. Our Lord never promised us that life would, here would be easy. In fact, he taught that we would have to face difficulties and fight battles. But he also promised a future reward for all who were faithful to him. Or as Paul counsels the Philippian church, that their situation is foretelling of what is to come. In Philippians 1, he says, Only let your, ma the manner of your, I'm sorry, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by, in anything by your opponents. This, this fact that you are standing firm and that you are not frightened, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So, so like with Philippians 1, the response, our response to troubles, as is also described in Romans 5, should lead us to the hope that one day these troubles are going to end and I am in fact God's child. And it's a, it's a danger sign to those that are persecuting his people. So let's focus in on this, these interesting statements of verse 5. 
where he says, this is evidence of, God, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now, these seem also counter-gospel statements. We think of the righteous judgment of God in light of that day of the Lord. But, but this righteous judgment of God is not an, a, a punishing judgment. It is the just judgment of God, that he was, could be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Remember again, this is evidence. Their steadfastness and their faith is evidence. His judgments are always righteous in the sense that they are just. And the fact that both God's word and our conscience the fact is, both of these, they tell us that we are not innocent. When we are judged by the just judgment of God, we would fail miserably. I'm not worthy in my own merit of belonging to God's kingdom. Where did the just judgment, the righteous judgment of God take place that allowed for my salvation? It's when he poured out his wrath on Jesus. It's when he allowed Jesus to be a substitution for me. And that evidence of that righteous judgment of God in my life and that I survived it is the endurance and the steadfastness and the faith that I have in Christ even through troubles and trials, even through pressure to deny him. So referring to the fact that, that remaining steadfast and full of faith during troubles is evidence of our being clothed in Christ's righteousness, saved. It's a sign that, that I have a saving faith because I have a persevering faith. And with that understood, let's look at how we might be called to respond. First of all, pursue God's spiritual perspective here. While we, while we live through physical troubles, pursue God's spiritual perspective. I've, I believe one lie that's being corrected here is this. It's a lie that the goal is to have God relieve us from suffering. Like somehow we worship him so that he will relieve us from suffering. That's paganism. That's, that's treating God like an idol. Okay, God, I'm giving you this to hopefully uh, have you show your grace on me and remove this suffering. That's a lie. That's not what we're to work through. Instead, we're being given God's perspective here. That what we are going through and going through it with steadfastness and with faith, it is showing that God justly calls us his child because we've received the righteousness of Christ. Or as Warren Wiersbe says, we are prone to think that suffering proves that God does not care when just the opposite is true. God's spiritual perspective allows us to see the present benefit beyond the physical world. And also we should pursue God's eternal perspectives. The second lie I think that's being corrected here is it's a lie that the reward for following Christ is in the here and now. 
And if we're not experiencing that full reward here and now, there's something wrong with our relationship with God. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The purpose of the Thessalonians' suffering was to bring glory to God by manifesting His grace in the way they bore up under their trials. Their suffering demonstrated that they were considered worthy of God's kingdom. In another sense, they were suffering as soldiers of Christ. You see, a persevering faith is evidence that you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And this is, this is the only factor that makes you and I worthy of membership in God's kingdom. And so he makes that interesting statement there where he says that you may be considered worthy. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, that doesn't mean we, we are making ourselves worthy. I like how the NIV puts it. You will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. We, you cling to Christ as the Savior and the purpose of our life. And that is evidence of the fact that we will be counted worthy in Christ's righteousness, not in our own. So pursue God's perspective during times of trouble. Warren Wearsby also says, as Christians, we must live for eternity and not just for the present. In fact, living with eternity's values in view is what makes our Christian life meaningful today. We walk by faith and not by sight. This life is, is full of challenges. This life is, is, uh, is full of, of disappointments so often. Um, you know, you hang out with, with older guys, as, as I enjoy doing, uh, and, and just try complaining about shoveling your walk or, or shoveling your driveway. You know, talk about how your back is sore, and they'll say things like, what do you mean, just your back? Or, or if I heard it said, you know, I just figure soreness is a good sign that I'm still alive. What are you complaining about? Join the club. And, and when troubles come with following Christ, we are encouraged with Jesus' words where he's saying, well, that means you're part of the club. Or as he says in John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we lack faith, when our faith is weak, we look at it and we say, but Lord, I don't see where you've overcome the world. We need a growing faith that helps us to be reminded and to take it to the bank, my Savior has overcome this world. And he said this even prior to allowing it to kill him. And it made it no less true. And Jesus prepared his disciples with, for their membership dues, if you will, in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the farmers. <laughs> the farmers, sorry. Looking ahead in my nose here. For those, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
not surprisingly, two farmers live next door to each other. I read a story. One a believer, the other an atheist. The atheist family, they hadn't been sick. His fields were rich for harvest, and he he was certain to make a lot of money, a bumper crop, if you will. The believer's crop didn't do very well. And and he didn't time his contract right. And so he wasn't going to be making the same amount per bushel as his neighbor would. Harvest soon came and the atheist taunted his neighbor. He saw the situation as proof that God doesn't exist because if he did, he obviously would have answered his neighbor's prayer. He might have said, I thought you said that it paid to believe in God and to be a Christian. The believer's response was, oh, it does pay. Only God doesn't promise to pay his children in autumn. He doesn't promise to pay us in this life the way that the world would expect, the way a pagan religion would look to. But there is a payday, my friends. There is a payday. And someone might look at the potential suffering as a Christian and say, no thanks, I prefer to keep my head down and just go with the flow. Some people feel like, I finally get to be a part of the cool crowd. All I have to do is say, hey, Christians, what's wrong with you? Why are you, why are you reading that old book? Don't you know we've evolved past that? Now all of a sudden, they get to be considered woke and cool. Just like that. If that person doesn't know the Lord, they're missing the blessed assurance that comes from growing through troubles. Not being kept from them, growing through them. If they don't know Christ, I hope they see that reality. Otherwise, living in this troubled world, they're truly living their best life now. And their future is just further separation from God for all of eternity. But what we have to look forward to is God's presence. If we, if we know that we walk with him in Christ's righteousness now through the troubles, he might seem so distant at times. He might seem hard to find. But we look ahead to the day where we will be right with him in his presence and free from all the troubles. That's what we look toward. Let's bow our heads.